excited to be with you all today. I am not the lead pastor here at New Creation Church. That would be Pastor Mark Bentliff. I need to use both hands. Um, but I am filling in for him today. Um, they are out. Um, they're being refreshed, ready to come back next week. Um, but I get the honor and the privilege of sharing the word of God with you this morning. I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, I've got charts. I've got graphs. I've got bullet points. And that's like the opposite of what I liked in high school. I would fall asleep in class. So my goal uh, this morning is for you not to fall asleep or not to be bored. I went a little long first service. I'll try not to do that this service. But I promise it won't be boring because I would be lying if I said I wasn't so bored in church a few times where I started looking at the maps in the back of my Bible. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Don't raise your hand. Stop. We will, and definitely not at this church. We, we have an amazing pastor. I'm just, I'm cutting up right now, but I'm serious. We have an amazing pastor who always brings a word that's fresh. It's in season. It's not just like for itching ears. It's for what God wants this body of believers to hear right now. So I love that we have a pastor doesn't, that doesn't just follow the trends, but really he follows the, the flow of the spirit and what God's telling us. So um, thank you, Pastor Mark, if you're watching this later. We're, we're so appreciative of you. But I get uh, the opportunity to share this morning. Um, so Pastor Mark started a brand new series last week called God Help Me. Um, uh, so we're in week two of this. God help me. Uh, raise your hand if you've ever prayed that prayer before multiple times a day. If you have children, say holla. <laughs> uh, seriously. Uh, God, help me with these kids. Help me love them the way that I'm supposed to. Help me uh, walk in patience um, because the kids, you know, they can test your patience. But I love them. I love my kids and I love people. And we know that God loves people and God is patient till the very end. And if we're to be like God, then we are to be walking in love and patience. Um, but it's okay to talk to God and pray this prayer and say, God, help me. Right? It's okay to recognize and acknowledge your weaknesses, your inadequacies, and ask God for strength. All right, it's the truth. Man, I'm hot up here. What's the temperature at? Can somebody adjust that? Are you guys cold or are you hot? Somebody said cold. There's like one person like, cold? <laughs> um, I don't know. I made the mistake of wearing a jacket. That's all right. Um, so, all right, there's nothing wrong with acknowledging your weaknesses, your inadequacies, and asking God for strength. In fact, that's how the Christian life should be lived, right? Let's look at what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, uh, verse 9. It says this, he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Amen. Let's, let's uh, read it in the Amplified Translation. I love this one. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My, love and, my loving kindness and mercy are more than enough, always available, regardless of the situation. For my power is being perfected and is completed and shows itself most effectively in your weakness. Therefore, I will all the more gladly boast in my weakness so that the power of Christ may completely enfold me and may dwell in me. So I am well pleased with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with prosecutions, and with difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak in human strength, then I am strong, truly able, truly powerful, truly drawing from God's strength. I love 
that translation of it. Breaks it down so beautifully. The life that God has called us to live is unattainable without him. Yeah, you can say amen to that. It's like, why would I say? It's the truth. (laughs) All right? God has called us to live a life of holiness and to be set apart from him and it's for him and it's impossible to do that without his help it's impossible to do it in your own strength so when you are weak you are actually strong because the strength the power of god is within you that strength is actually the same word that's used when paul says the same power that raised christ from the dead dwells and he quickens your mortal body that is the power that lives on the inside of you. Amen? So we need the gift of grace to operate in this life. And now real quick, I'm going to talk about the three aspects of grace. I don't have points for these ones. I should have made points, but I didn't. It's just we're going to do a quick overview of what grace really is. Number one, grace is an unmerited favor. I think we can all agree upon that. That's why it's a gift. We don't earn gifts. We're given to them despite our nature, despite whether we reciprocate anything back to God or not. A gift is free, and he gave us the free gift of grace. Number two, it's a divine influence upon our hearts that has its reflection in our lives. That's one of the definitions that Pastor Mark loves to use. And number three, which lastly, and I think most importantly for this time that we spend here on this earth, number three is this, that grace is divine empowerment. Divine empowerment. God's grace empowers us to do what we otherwise could not do in our own strength. We need the grace of God. Come on, we need the grace of God. And the reality is this, that we not only just need the grace of God, we need the gospel, the gospel of Jesus. And a pastor, a worship pastor, of a friend of mine uh, taught a message on this. And when I put slides up, these are kind of from his his message. I was at a conference uh, last year in Denver, and he taught on this, and it it revolutionized the way I see myself and my walk with God. And I'm hoping that it will do the same thing for you this morning. But Zach Hicks stated this. He said, the gospel is just as much for Christians as it is for non-Christians. It's just as much for Christians as it is for non-Christians. Well, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news. That's what it literally means, the good news. If you break it down even further, it means the almost too good to be true news. It's that lavish. It's that amazing what God did for us. It's the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins, rose again, eternally triumphant over the enemy. And now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but only eternal joy, that is the essence of the gospel. Amen? And it's not something that we just teach one time to an unbeliever. We kind of think it's like this experience right when they get saved. And we say, here's the good news, man. You want to get saved? Okay, awesome. Now you're on this life of discipleship. But it's not something that we hear once and then forsake and move on towards Christ. It's something that we desperately need to be reminded of on a daily basis, that I was once far away from God, but Jesus brought me near. Jesus brought us near to the heart of the Father. He took our punishment, and when he rose, I rose with him. And great power was released that day. Power to do what? To live a life of victory over the enemy here on this earth. 
sometimes we look too far to the future and say, you know, in the sweet by and by, right, when I get to heaven, all the problems will be gone. That's true, and I'm looking forward to that day. But Jesus purchased victory for us here, now, today, on this earth. But we can't obtain it without the grace of God, without the gospel of Jesus, right? Again, so it's not something we preach once, but it's something we need to be reminded of on a daily basis. What did the apostle Paul, what was his main focus, his like singular aim? He, he talked to the church of Corinth about it. He talked to the church of Philippi about it. I'll put it in a nutshell. He basically said this, my goal in life is to know Christ and him crucified and the power of his resurrection, and the power of his resurrection. Or in other words, I want to know Jesus personally and intimately. I want to fully understand what happened on the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection, why it needed to happen, and what it means for me moving forward in this new life with him. Paul was obsessed with the gospel, not just teaching it to people and getting them saved, he was obsessed with the gospel in his own life each and every day. The gospel isn't a one-time message, but something we need to fully grasp and understand and rely upon each day. Amen? Amen. So I'm going to put a, a graph up here for you. When we, when we talk about Christian growth, you can go ahead and throw that first one up. When we talk about Christian growth, we kind of look at it this way. So we got the cross down at the left. That's, that's when you get saved. You have an experience. You have salvation. You experience the cross of Jesus. You experience the gospel. And then you leave the cross and you move upwards. It's going up and to the right. We would call that Christian growth. We'd call that discipleship. And the end goal is heaven. It's eternity. And so we see it there. But notice how we're kind of leaving the, the cross behind and we leave it. Uh, in this model, I think we kind of look at it as like, as Christians, we want to grow and develop to be independent. Uh, which independence is great for a lot of different scenarios in life, but definitely not in your walk with Jesus. It's not about becoming more independent. It's about becoming more dependent upon him. And if we're honest, this graph might look a little bit too perfect. Let's go to the next one. I think most of us can relate to this one just a little bit more. Um, we have the salvation experience, and then we immediately have a, a great upward trend here. You know, this kind of looks like an iffy uh, company that you invest in on the stock market. You don't know where to, whether to buy or to sell and to hold. You just, you're kind of on long for the ride. That's how Christian life is a lot of times. We, we have our ups. We have our downs. We get to the top of a really high mountain just to jump off like an idiot and fall flat on our face. But notice the overall average trend here. It's still going up. It's still up and to the right. But notice that the cross is still down and to the left. It's still something that uh, we've kind of forsaken. Even uh, this graph, though more accurate and honest, it's, it's still not what Christian growth looks like. So let me propose a third model. I think it actually looks a little bit more like this. Two arrows, two paths, two parts of a single journey. This is what Christian growth looks like. On the bottom, the lower arrow is our growth in recognizing, understanding, and experiencing the depths of our need and dependence on God. It's recognizing our need for him, understanding that I need God way more than I thought I did. Way more than I thought I did. 
Amen. What marks growth in a maturing Christian is not how much we're getting better. Right? We kind of say we, we treat it as notches on the belt. Like, well, I didn't sin as much today, and I'm, I'm looking a little bit more like Christ. And we just see it as like boxes to check, and we're, just, we're, we're, we're growing, which is, is good. You want to be able to grow in Christ that way. But it's not about how much we get better. It's understanding that we need God far more than we could have ever imagined. Let's look at the upper arrow here. Simultaneously, the upper arrow represents our growth in recognizing, understanding, and experiencing the heights of God, his attributes, his character, his holiness, his majesty, his power, and his love for us. It's saying, God, you are far more amazing than I ever realized, far more holy than I could even imagine, far more powerful than I had dreamed. This is what Christian growth really looks like. You know, it's why David wrote in Psalm 36, 5 and 6, he said, your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. It's, it's so far out, he can't even comprehend it. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the great mountains. Your judgments are a great deep. He moves on even in, in Psalm 139, verse 6. His jaw is still dropping at the awe, the majesty of God. He had 103 chapters to figure this out. Couldn't do it. Don't blame him. You never will be able to. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. That's the mind-blown emoji. He doesn't even comprehend it. God is so wonderful. God is so big. God is so majestic. He's so holy. No wonder we need his help to fully grasp. And God help me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. In this graph, it's God that goes up and to the right. Not God increasing in his attributes. I'm not saying that God is increasing in his nature and his attributes. I know we sing a song here called You Keep On Getting Better. And I had somebody... Uh, after I got off the stage one day, was like, hey, you know what? God doesn't get any better. He's perfect and he's holy. I said, thank you. I know that. What I'm talking about is my awareness of God and his attributes, his holiness. It's like exploring a cave. Um, you might think it ends in a certain point, and then you find another pathway, and it opens up into a big cavern, and then you follow another pathway, and, the, and it seems like the cave is getting bitter, bigger. That's what you would say. You'd say, man, this cave keeps going forever. It keeps getting bigger. Well, the cave isn't really getting bigger. You're just exploring more of the cave, all right? That's what's, what it is with God. His heights, when we, when he, he, our understanding, our knowledge of his attributes is what's increasing, okay? And our acknowledgement of our need is increasing as well. But notice the trend that this model produces. Growth in this model creates a gap. It creates distance over time. So the question this creates in my mind is what fills the gap? You know, as I grow, the gap gets bigger. And if previous models had the cross and the gospel of Jesus at the beginning as something I experienced when I got saved and then moved on to pursue growth or discipleship, what does discipleship really look like in this model? This is what I think it looks like. It's one where the cross gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It's one where the gospel becomes more beautiful and more believable. Because this is how we're growing. To grow in Christian life is to grow in 
the recognition, the experience, and the belief that Jesus actually is who he said he was. And it's to know that actually this understanding of the gospel is more important to me now. It's more significant to me now as a mature Christian, as somebody who's older in their faith, than it was the day I got saved. It's understanding and having an awareness that the more that I see how awesome God is and the more I recognize my own depravity, the more I see the need for the cross, the gospel of Jesus in my life. Again, it's not something for non-Christians just to get saved. It's something that we experience, realize, and are aware of every single day. As those two lines separate even further, the gap is filled by the gospel. It's filled by the grace of God. It's why the Bible is always encouraging us to not boast in ourselves. Because in our own strength, we will fail every single time. Zach Hicks also said this. He said, God's grace will only be as amazing to you and the cross will only be as big to you as you are realistic with your own state of affairs. If you don't see the need for the cross, if you don't see the need for the grace of God, it will not be real to you at all. Pastor Mark said this once. He said a quote. He said, if you are not willing to admit that you are not enough, you won't embrace Jesus when he says that you are. I'll say that again. If you're not willing to admit that you're not enough, it's saying, I recognize how great God is and how depraved I am, and I need grace. If you're not willing to admit that you're, you're not enough, you will not embrace Jesus when he says that you are. The reason why he says that you are, you are enough because he is enough, and you are now found in him. If you are a believer in this room, you are now found in Jesus. You become enough because he is enough. Amen. Now hear me out. The goal here is not to stay in a state of depravity. It's not to live in a sin conscious. I know I'm talking about on this graph, you got to recognize how depraved you are. The goal is not to stay there. It's to be aware of your need for him and to be aware that there is grace that he's provided for us to fulfill the life he's called us to. So God help me is one of the best, most humble prayers you can ever pray. Don't shy away from that. Don't think or make the mistake that you can do this life on your own because you can't. And as I grow further, as I grow in my faith, I recognize how much I need God more than I ever have before, more than the day before. And I'll need him more tomorrow than I do today as I recognize how amazing he is and the call he has on my life and how flawed we are as humans. And the only thing that fills the gap is the gospel and it's the grace of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So the title of today's message is God, help me be holy. Help me be holy. Holiness is a term that makes us feel uneasy at times. It feels lofty. It feels like rules. It kind of feels like no fun. Um, when you think of the old holiness movements, you think of very, very appropriate clothing um, because that's what holy people do. Um, and we're not going to cause anyone to stumble. Um, but in the New Testament, holiness means set apart. It means set apart. So today I want to reverse that stereotype of holiness and show us that with God's grace, we can live lives that are set apart for him. 
set apart. All right, so why should we want to be holy? First uh, slide here. Why should we be holy? Three reasons. There's more. (laughs) Believe it or not, there's a lot more. I'm going to give you three easy reasons here. Number one, holiness fosters intimacy with God. It fosters intimacy with God. Psalm 15, 1 and 2 says this, Who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. So holiness fosters intimacy with God. Number two, holiness makes us useful to God. You know, in modern, uh, in today's terms, you don't want to be used by anyone. Used means abused. But in the kingdom of God, you are set apart to be useful to the kingdom, useful to him. That's 2 Timothy 2. We'll read verse 20 and 21. It says, but in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and what? Useful. I'm glad I said that by myself. Sanctified and what? Useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Here's a side note. You know, people say, well, there's vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor, and if God chooses you to be a vessel of dishonor, you just have to be okay with it. I've heard that before. There's a popular denomination that preaches that. But I love the last part of this verse because it says, if you, anyone who cleanses themselves from the latter, which decides I don't want to be dishonorable anymore, guess what? You get to be a vessel of honor now, fit for the master's use. God puts the power and the choice in our hands. We don't have to be dishonorable. We don't have to live in a sin nature. He says anybody who wants to cleanse themselves can do it by the blood of Jesus and by the grace of Jesus. And you can become a vessel of honor. Number three, holiness causes others to glorify God. 1 Peter 2, I'm going to read 9 through 12. It says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, who once were not a people but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Verse 12, this is where we're getting to, having the conduct Honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God on the day of visitation. Your holiness will cause other people to bring glory to God. Three simple reasons, not the only reasons, but let's jump into holiness this morning. Uh, My foundational text is going to be this, Hebrews 12. Verse 14 says this, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's a really big statement. That's a really intense statement to be made, mysterious writer of Hebrews, whoever you are, which I think is Paul, but I don't know. (laughs) That's a big statement. He's saying, if you're not holy, you ain't seeing God, period. Wow. All right, let's unpack this a little bit because, like, that didn't make me feel good. So when something in the word of God makes you feel a little uneasy, I think that's a a sign that you need to dig into it a little bit deeper. So I see three ways to look at this scripture. And in the Aramaic, 
which is the language Jesus spoke, the verse is translated this way. It says, without holiness, no one will see into the Lord. No one will see into the Lord. So the first way that I uh, see this scripture going, here's point number one. Your holiness is a window for the world to see the Lord. Right? If that's translated, no one will see into the Lord. Then our holiness is a window. Right? Your holiness doesn't just affect you. It affects those around you. If you're not holy, people won't see Jesus in you. You are a temple, which means you literally house the Spirit of God. As a New Testament believer, he's no, his presence is no longer in a movable tent. It is now within you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And hopefully your temple has a few windows. <laughs> right? If people are going to see into the Lord, there needs to be a window where people can see what's going on. Right? And you have the opportunity and the choice to be one of two windows. Stained glass or clear glass. You ever been in an old church that has stained glass all throughout the room? Beautiful. You get mesmerized when the sun hits it just right. Ooh. You see all the, the colors, they're like dancing on the floor. You think that's amazing. But I can't see anything on the other side. The only thing that stained glass is good for is to be looked at. So what's my motivation for being holy? Is it so I can have a perceived reputation that I'm good with God so that people can see how cool I am? Look at my threads. Look how much color I'm wearing. There really is no other purpose for stained glass. God is calling us to be clear glass, which is meant to be looked through, not looked at. Ask yourself that question when you're interacting with people. Are people seeing me or are they seeing Jesus in me? Without holiness, no one will see into the Lord. So that's point number one. Your holiness is a window for the world to see the Lord. Now let's flip this and we'll make it personal. Point number two. Your holiness is how the Lord sees you. Now I want you to hear me out on this one. Because it sounds like I am saying something that's not accurate. I know that God is all-knowing. Absolutely. I'm not debating that, but I'm trying to paint perspective for us. I picture it this way, that God is sitting up in the heavens and he says, you know, I have a son or a daughter. They're in the world right now. They, I know they gave their life to me about 15 years ago, but I'm having trouble seeing them. They're blending in right now. They're blending in with the world. Again, if holiness means to be set apart, it means like you're wearing an orange vest in the middle of the forest. doesn't mean you're blending in with your advantage timber, camo. It means that you are set apart and standing out so people can see you, but the Lord can see you, right? He even asked Adam and Eve, he said, where are you in the garden? I think he knew where they were, but he was trying to get them to tell the truth. But I also think about this. I think about the story of the prodigal son. When he left to spend his dad's inheritance, he went into the world far away from his father. His father could not see him, yet his father knew where he was. And it was only when the son came back, right? The father didn't chase him down. The father couldn't chase him down. It was only when the son came back that he was able to be restored, right? Your holiness affects whether or not the Lord can see you or not. And I'm not saying that he has no clue where you are. Just help me see this perspective I'm trying to give you. Set, a, set apart, right? Standing out for the Lord. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says this, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth 
to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. This means he's looking diligently, trying to find someone who's separate from their environment. And he's passing over the ones who blend in. I think of like a rover on the bottom of the ocean floor that's got lights and it's scanning the ocean floor, looking for treasure. It might pass over some really good stuff, but if it's buried, it doesn't know that it's there. Only the things that are out on the surface and reflecting the light does, does the rover see. Make sense? So this scripture makes me think that God is passing over people who blend in and he's got a reservoir of power ready and available to strengthen hearts, not just any heart, a heart that is fully committed, a heart that is holy, set apart for him. Amen? So this brings me to my third point on this scripture and I think it's the most obvious point. You, you yourself cannot see the Lord unless you are holy. So these are the three aspects of how I break down this verse. So this is number three. Leviticus 11, 1 Peter, they both say the same thing. They say, God, uh, or God says, be holy for I am holy. The, the New Living Translation says this, you must be holy because I am holy. So why so much emphasis? Why must we be holy? Well, it's because, it's because God loves you so much. He desires intimacy. He desires relationship. And sin and holiness do not coexist. So every choice you make in your life, whether you believe it or not, consciously or subconsciously, is drawing you further away from God or closer to God. Right? He's not punishing you. If you sin, he's not removing himself from you. He's not punishing you. The wrath of God was already appeased through the sacrifice of Jesus. In the New Testament, the only thing that can remove you from God is you yourself. So think about it. What decisions am I making? And are they bringing me closer to him or taking me further away from him? All right, you might be thinking, Jonathan, that's great. Love what you're saying, but we're made holy when we accepted Christ. 100%. I'm glad that you said that. I agree. But let's talk. All right. There's two aspects of holiness. First being our positional holiness, okay? Positional holiness is the change of status that you had when you accepted Jesus as your Lord. You became holy and righteous because of his holiness and his righteousness. So that does not change. Listen, I got married to my wife in 2017. I am no more her husband today than I was in 2017, I'm not growing in my husband status. I might be doing things a little bit better, but as far as my position goes, that doesn't, that doesn't change. Does that make sense? That doesn't change. Now let's look back at 1 Peter 1.16. He says, be holy as I am holy. He's not talking about a positional holiness. He's talking about behavioral holiness. So that's the second aspect of holiness, behavioral holiness. So after I married Brittany, there needed to be a behavioral change that would come into line with my positional change. The way you behave holy is to, be, to get a revelation of the first point, to understand your status, to understand where you are in the kingdom of God now. So after I married her, there needed to be a behavioral change, right? Since now I am completely and totally hers, I am set apart for her, I'm no longer going on dates with other people. I'm no longer talking to exes. I'm, no, I'm not flirting with anybody. I'm hers now. 
So it's the same thing with God. Our behavior should line up with our position. We've been made holy, so now we act holy. We need to separate ourselves from our old ways, our old behaviors, and be devoted to him. It's a very easy concept to understand when we talk about it on natural terms. You're like, yeah, if you were like still talking to your exes, I'd tell her to leave you. <laughs> like, yeah, for good reason. But we do the same thing with God. We cheat on God with our old ways, with our old nature, with the world, with sinful fleshly desires. We cheat on him on a daily basis. We say, God, I'm all yours, right? I surrender all most. Seems to be the theme of the modern day Christian if we're not careful. You know, we, we, we paint this picture like if I, in the natural, we say, man, that's disgusting. That, like that if, it, if you were to cheat on your spouse like that. But we don't see it the same way with God. And it's even more important. He created you. He knows you. He desires you. Hmm. Something to think about. Something to think about. Salvation doesn't just end with being saved and praying a prayer and that's it. You know, it's the birthplace. It's where things start, but it's not where things end. It's not the life of blessing and victory that we talk about. That's not it in totality. That's not, the fullness of it doesn't manifest on day one. It's something that we grow into. It's something that we walk into. It's something that is revealed to us. There's a more to salvation. How do we get to the more? Through holiness. Through holiness. So this word, like I said before, has a negative connotation. We think of rules. We think of do's and don'ts. We think of legalism. We think of a scorecard by which we're judged and we get a grade on how good we are and whether we get a seat into heaven or not. Now, again, your positional holiness doesn't change. But your behavioral holiness should reflect the position. Holiness is actually a beautiful thing. Holiness is the nature of Christ. It's not about rules. It's not even about perfection. It's about pursuing Jesus. And if we're going to be pursuing Jesus, we need to pursue his character. All right? We need to change our thinking from something like, man, I have to be holy. No, I get to be holy. Let's change our thinking. I wasn't upset that I couldn't talk to other women when I got married to Brittany. I said goodbye to them, and I'm looking forward. I've never looked back since. You know, it's easy for me to be fully devoted to her because I know she's fully devoted to me. You know, and what's a cause for unfaithfulness a lot is this perceived of uh, this perception, sometimes a false perception of non-reciprocated love. So you think, you're not, I'm not getting something from my spouse, so I go somewhere else for it. We do that with God. We think, I mean, I'm not getting what I need from God, so I go elsewhere for it. But really, serving God, becoming holy, loving him the way he calls us to love him is really birthed out of a revelation of his love for us. You know, the Bible says, we love him because he first loved he first loved us. And it's not like we're saying, like, I'm not going to love you until you love me. No. It's saying the ability to even love. I couldn't even love how you're calling me to love without your perfect love, unconditional love being on the inside of me, motivating me to do good works and, and love you back. His love causes us to be able to reciprocate it. We can't without it. We can't. All right? When we understand how much God loves us, it turns holiness from being a chore into being a joy and a privilege. 
I want to please my father because I love him and I know that he loves me. I'll tell you a quick story. I'm running out of time. I still got six more points, and they're good, I promise. So when I was in high school, I played baseball. I was a pitcher, and uh, actually Pastor Mark Bentliff was my pitching coach in high school, so that was pretty cool. Um, but I remember we had a non-division game in Grand Junction. We were playing a 5A school in Grand Junction. Didn't matter, but it mattered. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, dude, we better, we better like, show up today. Um, so I was a starting pitcher. I get into the bullpen. I'm throwing, I'm throwing hard. I'm hitting the glove. I'm making it pop. I'm hitting the corners. Like I, I would think, I would like to think that if a scout was there, he'd be like, yeah, he passes the eye test, right? Uh, and I look over at my uncle, I look over at my dad, and they're like, dude, he's feeling it today. I'm like, yeah, I'm feeling it today. So we get, in, uh, we get into the game, first inning, I throw a nine-pitch inning, which means I strike out all three batters on nine pitches. Strike, 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 next batter. Strike, 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 next batter. Strike, strike, strike. That's the top of their order, right? The first batter, the best hitter is usually first or like third, they call them clean up, whatever. I strike them all out. I'm feeling pretty good. Getting a little bit, it's, it's getting to my head. All right, I get out to the second inning. I don't know if they found my scouting report, which doesn't exist, or they just, or just my ego got to me. But I throw the first pitch. I kid you not, I'm not lying. I wouldn't lie in church. He hits a home run. First pitch of the second inning. I go, that's okay. That's all right. That's fine. I throw the second pitch to the next batter. I kid you not. Home run over the fence. It was like the Dr. Jekyll and Hyde of a baseball performance. I was like so one way in the first inning and so not that way in the second inning. And I'm looking over and I'm like, somebody needs to validate me. And I end up throwing away the game. They got to pull me. We lose. And it started out so good. Man. But I looked over at my dad and we talked after the game. You know what my dad didn't do? He didn't bring up all my mistakes. And he didn't talk to other people about my mistakes. You know, the Bible says that when God forgives us, he casts our sin as far as the east is from the west to remember it no more. Did we address the mistakes? Yes. Did we work on the mistakes? Yes. But my dad's main point was to focus on how much he loved me. And when he talked to other people about me, he talked about how I threw a nine-pitch inning. He didn't talk about all the mistakes. So I'm not saying that God won't address failures but I'm saying that God is very concerned with you understanding how much he loves you. And we want to go from the mindset of, you know, uh-oh, my dad's here. I better not make a mistake to, hey, my dad is here. I'm going to play good. I want to play for him. And some of us might have a skewed uh, uh, relationship with our earthly fathers. Some of us may not even have fathers. So it's really hard to understand this. But I'm telling you this, that, God is a father to the fatherless, and he's a perfect father. Even if your earthly father was not a good example, you have a heavenly father who's perfect and who's cheering you on and who loves you. So it's easy to devote myself to God when I understand how much he loves me. And we know that he has our back, right? There's two really good motivators in life, love and fear. Second is fear, <laughs> It's a, it's a pretty good motivator, but it's a terrible motivator. You don't, want it, you don't want that. That's what the devil uses. But God uses love. Love is the best motivator. Now, if you give me five more minutes, I'll let you out of here. I promise it will be worth it. We're going to talk about six keys to holiness real quick. Six keys to holiness. Number one, get high. It's not because we live in Colorado. Colossians 3, 
This is all based out of Colossians 3. This is how you become holy. Since you have been raised to a new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. Stop spending time thinking on things of no value. Like who offended you, or what that person said, or what movie just came out. Right? Think about Jesus. Am I saying you can't ever think about the new movies? No. But what's your primary train of thought? What occupies most of your day? If I'm being honest, a lot of times it's not God. It's not. But let's work on making him the main thing. Think about the cross. Think about the blood of Jesus. Think about your righteousness and how you're a son or a daughter. Think about the word. Think about souls coming into the kingdom of God. Think about love and joy and peace. Think about forgiveness. Number two, stop wearing your giveaways. This is Colossians 3. I'll read 5, 7, 8, and 9. Not that I don't agree with six, it's just from this point, I'm going to read seven. So put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, idolatry. Verse seven, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. Right? These things are part of the old nature. They're the grave clothes. These are things that you're not supposed to, they would be called giveaways. I don't want to give away my grave clothes to anybody, like in real life, but for the sake of the analogy. Stop wearing your giveaways. Stop wearing the grave clothes. Stop wearing the old man. That was put to death when you accepted Jesus. Don't go digging it back up. Amen. Amen. Number three, put on your fancy clothes. All right? Put on your dancing shoes. No, just <laughs> your fancy clothes. Colossians 3, 10 and 12. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge of the image of its creator. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We're pulling a men's warehouse today. You're going to like the way you look. I guarantee it. Come on. Clothed with righteousness. Number five. Oh, no, sorry, four. <laughs> Number four, let it go, bro. Colossians 3.13. Bear with one another and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. It's not worth it to hold on to that. You know, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to be affected. It only affects you. It only hurts you. That's the old man. It's earthly thinking, it's temporal, and it's sin, and it's separating you from God, and it's separating you from that person that God's called you to love. you got to let it go. Number five, get rich. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, richly. You should be a student of the word. You should crave it. You should desire it. It should get in you. In other words, other words for rich are plentiful, abundant, lavish, and overflowing. The word of God needs to be written on the tablet of your heart. No longer on tablets of stone, but in the New Testament, the word is now written on tablets of our heart. Why is it so important? Because the iPad can die. The book can get lost or can get destroyed. How does the word of God remain forever? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever because it's written on the hearts of man. It's so important for the written word, which is logos, 
to be in your heart so it can become the spoken word, which is rhema. Rhema is not just a college in Oklahoma. It's literally the spoken word. You know, we were just talking in Bible school. We talked about the armor of God, the written word, logos. That's the belt of truth. Think about a soldier. The sword is the sword of the spirit. That's the rhema. That's the spoken word. Where does it always come from? It comes from the belt. The spoken word must come from a place of truth. In order for you to speak the rhema, spoken, living word of God, it must come from the written word, which means it's got to get down in your heart. If you've got no reservoir to draw from, you will be attacked by the enemy with no defense. You need to be a student of the word. And I'm preaching to myself. There's times when you get up late, and the last thing you want to do is read your Bible. But it's life. And what you're doing is you're inscribing it on the tablet of your heart so that when you need it, regardless of whether you have the Bible next to you or not, it's in you and it comes out of you and it changes the situation. Amen. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Also, in culinary terms, rich means a certain flavor is more dominant than the others. Right? When I take a, a bite out of, out of a good piece of chocolate cake, it better be rich. Come on. I don't want to be like, what is that? Mm, is that like hints of vanilla? No, it's chocolate. I know that it's chocolate. It's rich. It's decadent. It, come on. I, my, my taste buds don't have to be trying to figure out what it is. The flavor is present even into the aftertaste. The Bible says this, to taste and see that the Lord is good. If others are going to be tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, how do they do that? They do that out of your life. They encounter you. When they encounter you, are they having to guess that you're a Christian? Hmm, I, I, there's, some, there's some undertones of uh, faith in Christ. I don't, I'm not sure, though. A little bit of conviction, maybe not. A little. <laughs> no. When someone encounters you, they should know. It's like biting into a piece of chocolate cake. Oh, and that's, that's rich, right? Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's number five. And number six. Get yourself a tortilla. You're thinking, what? See, a naked burrito is not on the menu. I know you love it at Chipotle and Qdoba. But imagine if you had to eat that burrito bowl without a utensil. If you had to just eat it with your hands. It'd be a mess. It'd fall apart on you. You'd use way too many napkins. But a tortilla holds it all together. It's what makes a burrito a burrito. Without it, you just have ingredients. And this is what love does to all these other virtues, to everything in your life that you do for God. Love brings them together. It holds them and it binds them together. It makes them secure. Colossians 3.14, but above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. It's the tortilla around the ingredients. It's what makes Colossians 3 turn from a list of chores that you got to do into something that you desire Holiness and being like God because you're motivated by love. Holiness not motivated by love is nothing more than a show. It's like someone staring at stained glass. It's pretty, but it doesn't do anything for me. Why am I doing this? Why do I want to look holy? Why do I, why, why do, is it for perceived repu reputation or is it because I want to be close to my father? And when I truly get a revelation of God's love for me, it causes me to see and to love others the way that he does, right? It turns this, this life 
into something that we try and do on our own, from something that we want to do on our own, to something that we walk hand in hand with Jesus and we grow each and every day. Again, going back to my very first thing, I understand how amazing God is and how not amazing I am. And I access grace and I hold on to the gospel, the good news. And Jesus says, we're doing this thing together, right? My yoke is easy, my burden is light. And he gives you the Holy Spirit and he gives you grace. He says, we're doing this thing together. Isn't that awesome? When we understand that, we understand how lofty it is. We understand how we can't do it on our own. We need grace. And we cry out and we say, God, help me be holy. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's alive, that it's active, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. I thank you that it exposes the things that need to change and it helps us see who we really are in you. Father, help us be holy. I thank you that it's not something that we should shy away from or be scared of, but it's something that we pursue because we know that you're helping us do it. It's not necessarily a destination. It's a process. It's life. We live holy. We don't obtain holiness and say, hey, I'm, I'm done now. Thank you. No. We live in a place of holiness with you and by your grace. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you. Why don't you guys stand up? I'm sorry I, I went five minutes longer than I said I would go. Um, but you should still be able to get.